So I've invited three of the wisest people I know to <laughs> share, <laughs> share their thoughts on the subject with us. So we'll have a little uh, panel on this question from Kim and Shelley and Lori. And in case it doesn't take the whole 20 minutes, maybe some of you others, especially some of the mentors who are here or anyone who has an idea, you just, we might have a few minutes for you to offer something if you'd like. Who wants to go first? <laughs> I've got the mic. Okay. Um, what I want to talk about actually is uh, it's related to the th the third of the three uh, refuges that we often take in uh, Buddhism, the you know, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And uh, can you hear me? Okay. Um, I think uh, early in my practice, I thought of the Sangha as being kind of a, like the third class refuge in a way. <laughs> I thought if I had the Buddha and the Dharma, the Sangha wasn't uh, really necessary. And uh, I've come to have very, very different feelings about that now. Um, it's been very, really, really valuable in my practice. And I think it's a way of, uh, of moving ourselves engaging with the, with the Sangha as a way of moving ourselves deeper in the practice. I want to read something uh, from the suttas that um, probably a lot of you have heard before. It's quite often quoted in Dharma talks. <coughs> I have heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was living among the Sakyans. Now there is a Sakyan town named Sakara. There Venerable Ananda went to the Blessed One and on arrival having bowed down to the Blessed One, sat to one side. As he was sitting there, Venerable Ananda said to the Blessed One, <coughs> This is half of the holy life, Lord. Admirable friendship, admirable companionship, admirable camaraderie. And this is very moving to me to read this. Don't say that, Ananda. Don't say that. Admirable friendship, admirable companionship, admirable camaraderie is actually the whole of the holy life. When a monk has, when a student, when a practitioner has admirable people as friends, <coughs> companions, and comrades, he or she can be expected to develop and pursue the Noble Eightfold Path. <laughs> I really believe that. I take that really to heart. And, uh, and so what makes admirable um, company so valuable to us. I think uh, there are so many ways that, um, that it is valuable to us. When I know just probably you've noticed this morning just practicing together all, uh, you know, together and all the other times you've practiced together with other people, how there is an energy, you know, between us, among us that, um, that makes our practice easier, makes, uh, makes our minds um, calm and that inspires us. And uh, and working together the way we have over the last almost year, um, in small groups and in larger groups, discussing uh, the the Dharma and uh, being supportive to each other in terms of working with challenges and um, working with breakthroughs and insights and 
um, sharing ways that we're, uh, we feel blocked and seeing that we're not the only ones, that others have share the same kinds of uh, obstacles. All that is so, um, is so enlivening to our practice and so helpful to us, such a support. Also, I think seeing the challenges that other, others face really um, helps to open our hearts and shows us how we're all really connected in the Dharma, connected in life. We learn new ways of meeting our challenges from other people. And, uh, and it's also a way of engaging with, you know, life out off the cushion, you know. The, it brings the whole of life into our, pra- into our Dharma practice. It's a, a way of bringing, uh, of doing that, of bringing our lives right into the, into the practice. And also, you know, um, until we're really saturated in the Dharma, um, it's helpful to be with people who, you know, can support us in, uh, in our good habits rather than uh, spending time with, uh, with those who maybe encourage us in habits we'd rather not, <laughs> you know, indulge in so much. So I thought I'd just talk about a few ways of connecting with, um, with community that uh, I've found really helpful. The first is um, Kalyanamita groups. Sure, I'm sure a lot of you probably know what those are. Can you just, if you don't, they're um, Kalyanamita means spiritual friend, and uh, Kalyanamita groups can they can be a group of I think they can be as few as three people or as many as maybe ten. It depends on uh, what the focus is. That are usually focused around a particular uh, topic, like a book or a one of the Buddhist lists, taking a teachings and discussing them, working together with them. Sometimes they're um, like uh, groups r- related to a, the career that you're following or a particular interest. They might even be a gr- might even be a group that watches movies together and discusses them in terms of the Dharma. It's a group of people who come together for the purpose of sharing their lives, sharing um, sharing some particular aspect, like interest in a book or a teaching, or sometimes just as a support group talking about the the way their lives in the Dharma are unfolding. So it's a group of peers. And then uh, another kind of a subset of that kind of uh, group is uh, Dharma buddies, which I don't know, did you guys have Dharma buddies in the IMC uh, iteration of this? We did one year. One, uh we in in our Santa Barbara group that was part of the part of the process. Everybody had a, at least one Dharma buddy, and that's been really valuable in my practice as well. I, the first time I came across it was in uh, at Spirit Rock in the DPP, the Dedicated Practitioner Program, and I that was six seven years ago, and I still have these uh, people in my life who I meet with on a regular basis, who have become friends and. Uh, a Dharma buddy is like, a Dharma buddy relationship is like a two-person Kalyanamita group, kind of, where you come together and the focus is the Dharma in your life. Um, and that can, also, that can take lots of forms, you know, also working with a particular teaching or just working with your, your life as it's unfolding. It's really supportive. It's been really, really supportive to me, and I think I highly recommend it to other people. And it's... Uh, it's another peer relationship. 
And often there are kind of ground rules that go with it, like not giving advice unless it's asked for, just being really support to each other. And then another kind of uh, two-person relationship that, um, that all of you are familiar with in this room is a mentoring relationship. Um, it's, and it's, you know, there are many, many people practicing the Dharma around the state, the country, the world who don't have the opportunity to have a mentor. It's a really, uh, it's a really great thing. I think it's a real benefit. And, uh, and so a mentor can be someone like in this program, someone who's a senior student, someone who knows, um, a bit more maybe about the Dharma and has a little bit more experience in practice than you so that, uh, so that there can be direct guidance. Um, and uh, pointing to areas that you that you might want to explore. It's not exactly a peer relationship. And a mentoring relationship can also be, of course, with an established teacher, uh, um, you know, one of the senior teachers. And that, uh, and that too, is, um, you know, an opportunity to get direct guidance about, about your practice. And that's, you know, admirable. Companionship, camaraderie, friendship. And then the fourth way that I wanted to mention is um, supporting your local sangha, just getting involved with, uh, with your sangha, whether it's IMC or uh, Lori's sangha in Modesto, our sangha in Santa Barbara, whatever sangha you happen to be closest to, your, or uh, sit, you know, a sitting group that's a satellite sitting group of, uh, of a bigger sangha. The, um, the possibility to offer yourself as a, you know, in service to, uh, to help put on events, to help plan events, to, to move into uh, positions of leadership where you're helping to, um, you know, decide what kinds of, what the curriculum might be in a, in a sangha if there isn't a, a teacher there to, there to decide that, if there isn't a formal structure for that. Just helping, you know, bringing food for potlucks or, um, you know, helping to set up a hall for a day long, those kinds of uh, activities, I think they, in supporting the offering of the, of the Dharma to other people, they also support us, and they, and they cultivate, you know, qualities of generosity, qualities of the heart that are really, uh, really valuable. And I think it's natural as our, as our practice develops that we want to, um, offer it. You know, we want the, we want our practice to be of benefit to others because of the benefit we felt ourselves. I think that's just kind of an organic, um, part of, you know, moving along in our, uh, in our practice life towards maturity. So that's, that's uh, really all I wanted to say. There are a lot of other ways, of course, of, you know, having a community, uh, in the Dharma and, and, uh, moving in that direction as you, in order to, you know, just cultivate more of the, uh, more of the qualities of the heart and uh, qualities of the mind that are uh, leading us towards freedom. So, that's my (coughs) part, (laughs) Sangha. Thank you, Shelley, that was Mm. very inspiring. so I've, I've chosen uh, to add a couple of options to 
all of what we're saying is an and. <laughs> so and, um, I'd like to offer the possibility of um, deepening your practice as you move forward. You know, how can I do more? What else can I do? There are a couple of different avenues to practice in ways that are formal and traditional within uh, the tradition that we're learning from. The first is to come on a residential meditation retreat. And you're sitting in a residential meditation retreat center. Many of you commented when you came in how nice it feels here. So I know some of you have already done this, um, and maybe some of you haven't. And this is definitely not something that is expected or is required, or if you're a really good practitioner, this is what you need to do now. I offer it as something that uh, is a plant a seed, and when you feel that it's the right time, you'll know uh, that, it, that it's good. And this is an option to come here. So people come to Insight Retreat Center typically for either a weekend or usually more likely a week at a time. And uh, the practice here is very much like what we've been doing today, the silent parts, where there's a sitting and a walking, and then the meal would be silent, and then you hear maybe hear a Dharma talk, and then they're sitting and walking, and then you sleep, <laughs> and then you eat. You get the picture, right? It's, it's very simple, and there's, no, um, there's actually no talking during that time, except you'll get a chance to talk with the teacher, of course. And people at first say, sometimes say, I don't think I could really not talk. <laughs> That's the, the first response. Um, and I would say that those are the people who end up being the most appreciative, I think, of the, of the time without speech. And this is an opportunity to really connect with your own heart. And, you know, you don't have the roles that you're playing in your life. You come here and you're no longer in the family role, in the uh, employee role, or the community role even that you're in and you enter a place where your job actually is to practice mindfulness. And, um, and that will necessarily involve practicing compassion also, you will find. And really to steep yourself in the Dharma for a few days or a week. And people find that this is a chance to uncover different layers of their practice often. You know, these will come maybe eventually uh, in daily life practice, but it's it's a different exposure when you have that kind of um, very continuous time doing the practice. And I'll just share that one thing I found that's surprising, for example, that many people find is that the person I'm sitting next to on retreat, I feel like I'm their friend at the end, even though I haven't spoken with them. <laughs> um, but just practicing together in that deep way. It's just like creating a sangha for a week and really coming to uh, be in connection with other people who are sharing that same purpose for a short period of time. Most people find it quite meaningful. It can be challenging and it can be deepening. So, you know, please consider when the right time for you might be to consider coming and doing multiple days of practice at once. It's a very traditional way, actually, in our, in our tradition. The monks uh, were told to meditate for three months <laughs> and then uh, walk and be in the community and 
serve people for nine months of the year. And then the second um, option that I would offer as a way of expanding or and or deepening practice is to develop a relationship with the written texts that originally guided the teachers who are, you know, the teachings that are passed from teacher to student. Those came, of course, originally from the spoken teachings of the Buddha. We understand that to be true. And at some point um, in the history, it, it was important that these be written down. And so in our tradition, which comes from what's called the Theravada tradition of Buddhism that exists in Southeast Asia, uh, we follow texts that were written down um, several hundred years after the Buddha died. And those texts are um, were closed at some point. We actually have what's called a closed canon um, of written texts that are basically these teachings, you know, sit down, follow your breath, <laughs> um, develop mindfulness, develop compassion, develop loving kindness, act with generosity and ethics. These are all... Um, interestingly, uh, written down, and they've been translated, most of them, into English now, and have been passed from teacher to student from that time. Uh, we follow these, mostly these early Buddhist texts, although the teachers in Thailand and Burma, who trained many of the teachers we have, including Gil, uh, use a slightly different form than the ancient texts, so there can be some comparison. Anyway, I won't go into too much detail. You can see this is a topic that is interesting to me, and I'll say that for my practice, it's meaningful to me uh, to read uh, to read the written teachings and think about them, reflect on them, use them in my meditation. I have been amazed that wisdom written down 2,600 years ago, from 2,600 years ago, explains how my mind works. <laughs> how about that? So this, for me is an expansion into, oh, this is so much bigger than my life and my particular issues and my particular strange personality. Um, this is something about the human heart and it's really opened my compassion, my wisdom, my sense of lightness. It's not really about me. <laughs> um, and my, my awe at being able to participate in a process that has been going on for this long and that is has touched I don't even know how many people since that long ago. This is something really big that we're participating in at every level that we're doing it. It's profound. It's profound. And for me, reading these teachings has deepened that greatly. So I offer those options if you are interested, formal retreat practice and engagement with the texts. One of the ways to do that is through the Sati Center connected with IMC, and I can also give you some resources if you'd like to talk with me later. Thank you. So I'll give a couple more options. And um, the first one is just to mention um, that there are programs at IMC and maybe at your local Sangha as well um, um, of opportunities to go a little deeper. Um, the Dharma practice days that Gil offers at IMC are wonderful ways to do this kind of exploration further. 
Um, and in particular, it has the same kind of some somewhat flavor of the Eightfold Path in the sense that there's there's uh, discussion, there's interaction, as well as looking at the specific teachings. So I highly recommend that. In fact, I noticed that Gil's going to do a um, series on the Anapanasati Sutta this coming year. So um, if you can do that, that's a once a month um, program. And uh, I highly recommend exploring those kinds of options. And the other thing that I wanted to mention is a practice that I uh, came across actually through, I've been trained through Stanford to do uh, compassion cultivation training. And um, so Tubton Jimpa from the Tibetan tradition has spoken very highly of this one particular practice, and I really like it, and he calls it bookending. And the idea here, if you want to think about it in terms of the Eightfold Path, is the second factor, which is right intention. And the idea is to start your day with a particular intention in mind. So maybe you're practicing with one of the eight factors, or you want to practice some particular aspect of the Dharma to start your day with a conscious intention. May I infuse my day with compassion, or may I uh, be aware of right speech, or whatever the, whatever the thing is that you want to, to pay attention to. And then at the end of your day, this is not the time to tally up all of the bad parts of the day, but instead to reflect on the times during the day in which you somehow followed that intention. And what's really important about that is is to reflect, oh, you know, at this time during the day, I practiced right speech, for example, and I saw the result of it. And then to rejoice, this is, this is the key point, because sometimes we tend to downplay the joy part, to bring joy in reflecting on that particular good action, that wholesome action, and to really just allow yourself to be nourished by that. And, um, you know, if you forgot, that's okay. You can then make an intention in the morning. You're going to get up and you're going to do that again. But the idea is not to hold that as uh, something to beat yourself up about, but instead to, to really nourish this quality of joy, nourish the wholesome actions, or to reflect and to actually uh, appreciate the wholesome actions that you participated in during the day. And I think that there's something really valuable about that because we tend to look at, often we tend to look at when we didn't do something or we tend to look at the dukkha aspect, right? And so this is actually intentionally placing uh, emphasis on the, on the sukha part or on the wholesome part because the Buddha says, you know, we can, we can pay attention to different types of actions or different types of thoughts, and we can see how they result. But if we start nourishing and appreciating the wholesome, that that encourages us to continue, rather than holding, 
you know, ourselves against the dukkha blackboard, which we all are good at. So um, I really like that practice, and it could be used in many different ways. So I offer you those two aspects. I wonder if any of the other mentors or does anyone have anything you would like to add? What would you recommend to someone who wants to know what they might do next? It, it follows on what Lori was just sharing, but just um, I found it helpful to keep the Bhikkhu Bodhi book and the Bhante Gunaratna book. I happen to really be fond of the Bhikkhu Bodhi book, but keep it around. And um, you know, one 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 part of it per month will just sort of float up as being prominent in that month, and just kind of consciously going back to it, reading it, and seeing how it plays out in my daily life. Just somehow beginning a month with that, <laughs> I'll notice it a lot more during the month. So, And just going around that, those rounds a number of times seems to have been very helpful. So on the uh, study aspect of it, I'd like to recommend that everyone, well, a person can, one may go back and look at the um, at the practice notes that were on the on the uh, website, and um, try to um, get a sense of the summary of those or the kernel aspects of each of the steps in the eightfold path, and make sure you know all that you can recite from memory all the steps, and that you can. As you go through each one, you can have a sense of, yeah, that this is what this is about. Um, so that's my suggestion. Following on with what Liz said, um, at this point, now that we've gone through all the steps and we've had the meetings and whatnot, when I go back and I read a chapter in Bhikkhu Bodhi or Gunanatara, however you say his name, and you realize, man, there's a lot more here than the first time I read it. It's like a whole new book to me, you know? But I can also appreciate that I've made some progress, which is really nice sometimes because of the times you don't feel like you're making any progress at all. So, good advice. Um, do people ever redo this course is one question. <laughs> and um, um, uh, how do you become a mentor? People do redo this course. Um, I'm not sure. 
I have to say I suspect that people who are repeating might be uh, second priority to new people if there should be a shortage of mentors next year. But, you know, apply if you want to do it again. Um, and there is a program that we just started this year for training people to be mentors that's going to run either two or three years. So in one or two more years from this fall, there will be another opportunity to join that. And it has some prerequisites, like having done this course as a mentee and sitting a retreat or two. Some, you know, you can look and see what's involved in that course. Would that be announced um, at some point in the newsletter? Yeah, it will be, but it'll be a couple. It'll be at least a year and maybe two before the next round of that is underway. So one thing that occurs to me is, oh, go ahead, please. On the social side, um, Insight Meditation Center also has Dharma Friends. And if you check on the website, on the left side, there is a tab. Uh, there are a variety of uh, book groups. We also go on hikes, uh, movies. Uh, there are a lot of activities there. So if you want to make other fellow practitioners, that's an opportunity to do so. Well, I wanted to mention something that I thought for sure one of, uh, one of you three was going to mention, and because I I'm inspired <laughs> by you, but uh, just slowing down and making some space in your life, you know, maybe having a email-free day now and then, or, uh, you know, um, it, it's, we can think, oh, what's the next thing to read, the next people to meet, the next activity, and really missing the fact that this, you know, this is the book that you want to keep referring to, and uh, and some way to disengage from the constant engagement is the only way you're really going to feel some of that subtle stuff that's motivating you. So just putting in a word for quiet time. Speaking of which, we have 20 minutes of quiet time right now. If you want to stand up and stretch, that's fine, and then we'll just have a, have a 